Welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. This is Dan coming to you from the woodshop of DTM Enterprises, our makeshift podcast studio for the time being. Uh, this is a location that's very special to me. Uh, one of the miracles in my recovery life is uh, getting a chance to build a dedicated wood shop in my backyard. Uh, one of the uh, things I've always loved to do is is make things out of wood or make things with my hands, period, fix things. Uh, my dad was a handyman, and I, and I grew up with my hands on, uh, on pieces of equipment to repair. Uh, we never had a handyman in our house. But a love for woodworking came around, and uh, early on, my sponsor talked to me about people who, um, what would you might say, um, some characteristics of folks who get the most out of their recovery and out of life in general. And one of those characteristics is that they have something creative they do in their lives. Um, we were looking for something of that nature for me, and, and my woodworking just popped up. It's funny how you don't see that stuff until somebody shines a mirror on it and shows you. And uh, in my second year, I guess, my well, my third year of recovery, I uh, built a dedicated wood shop in my backyard. Um, tools in here are my grandfather's tools, many of them, uh, many of them much older than me. And uh, I get to sit out here and make what I call man glitter uh, when I'm not doing the podcasting gig. This is just a part-time fun thing for me. And uh, we'll see where that, uh, where higher power takes us in that. So uh, I mentioned there that miracle list. Um, early on, my sponsor recommended that when these things were happening to me that were uh, a result of my recovery, these miracles, I will say today, that I write them down and put them on a list. And, and I started doing that. And, and they started piling up. And today, tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I was getting ready to do a lead some a couple months ago. And... Uh, I was laying listening to, uh, I, was wanting to, I was wanting to talk about these miracles in recovery. I didn't really want to do the same old, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now story. And uh, so I was thinking about this, and, and I really didn't know how to like, get it started. And, and I listened to a guy who gotten a lot of traction lately. His name is Jordan Peterson. And uh, as I was laying in bed listening to him one night, he, uh, he dropped this on, uh, on the microphone. I don't know what happens to a person when they bring themselves completely into alignment. I've had intimations of what that might mean. We don't understand the world that well. We don't understand what the world could be if we could master the world completely. We don't understand how an individual might manage that. We don't know what transformations that might make possible. Find out how much good you can do in the world and not in the moralistic thou shall not way but in a forthright, noble, courageous, eyes wide open, articulate, and embodied manner. And then God only knows where you can get. So when he said that, having intimations of uh, what it might mean when you bring yourself completely into alignment, I do a lot of yoga, and uh, one, of the, one of the phrases we use there is to get yourself into uh, true north alignment. Uh, get my internal compass needle pointed in my north, which could may, which more than likely is not the same as your north. Uh, that feeling of knowing when you are exactly where you're supposed to be, doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, that kind of feeling, that is when you know your compass needle is pointed into your true north. So let's get down to some of these miracles. Uh, in June of 2014, I had uh, broken into a house once again, and uh, this time, well, again, had been caught. Uh, six months earlier, the gentleman in the house had caught me, and uh, and he tried to offer me some help. Uh, I couldn't accept that help at that time, uh, but I did get, you know, that scared me enough to get me clean for a little while, uh, but uh, without any work and without getting these, uh, working these steps and getting my house cleaned, uh, wasn't going to stay clean and I didn't. And, uh, lo and behold, I found myself. <laughs> that's, that's crazy talk. I, I was in, I found myself it really is like a parasite to me. Uh, it's like I was hijacked. I say that today. Uh, somebody had a hold of the joystick called Dan and had him doing things that he normally wouldn't do. Uh, if my spirit was well, if my, uh, soul was, was healthy, if I'm mentally and spiritually sound, 
Uh, I'm not breaking in houses, stealing pain pills. I can promise you that. So I found myself doing that again, breaking into his house. And this time he met me with a ball bat and uh, pepper spray. And he wasn't near as uh, ready to help me this time around as last time. Funny thing was, he helped me a lot better this time in the long run because it got my attention. But I got away that night, uh, scrambled away. He knew who it was, and but I still ran off. And, and so I didn't get caught that night, but I ended up uh, going down a, a court trail, Was had a warrant out for my arrest and turned myself in with a lawyer. And uh, one of the things that happens in the small town I live in is that if you get arrested for jaywalking, uh, your name will be in the local paper. I read it, uh, see those names in there quite often. I don't really read the newspaper anymore, but I still will touch on that part to see if any of my, uh, anybody I know happens to maybe need my, my brand to help, this 12-step help, but uh, this gift I've been able to receive and now give away. So back to the original part of this. Uh, I've been caught breaking in that house, and uh, my name never hit the newspaper that time. I was watching for it. I just knew it was going to. And day after day, uh, I wasn't showing up in there. And and my name had been in that paper quite a few times in the past, and I brought embarrassment and, and shame to my parents when they uh, would have to explain or see people know everybody around town that once again, uh, their little Dan was uh, in, getting in trouble and getting his name in the, in the police uh, bookends, bookends and releases. So that was one of the miracles, uh, not getting my name in the paper and sparing my parents that uh, one more level of embarrassment. Uh, that night when the cops came into my house looking for me and I wasn't there, uh, a gal was staying with me and uh, so was her child. And my two and her daughter were in back in the bedrooms and the cops came in the house and did a thorough search of the property. Uh, they shined their flashlights under my kids' beds in the closets uh, of course, upstairs, downstairs, crawl space, every place. But the most important part was in those bedrooms. And my children did not wake up that night. Not with they did. They were spared the memory of the police looking for their father. So we traveled down the road a little more. And uh, I'm going to meetings, pretending like I'm sober. I'm really, uh, I'm really a mess. Uh, I'm playing that deal where. Um, where I want everybody to think I'm sober. About once a month or so, and I really don't know how often it was, but I would have to go down to the courthouse and uh, show up for another hearing concerning my case. And uh, when I first stood in front of that judge, he told me what I'd done had, uh, would, would carry the sentencing guidelines of uh, six to 20 years in the Indiana Department of Corrections. Uh, that scared the shit out of me. So I'm going down every so often, and I would have these appointments in the morning, usually around 9 a.m., and I would take the entire day off of work. Uh, directly after leaving the courthouse, I would go to the liquor store, uh, get enough alcohol, try to balance that little, play that little balance, because I just wanted enough to carry me through today, because tomorrow I would have to be back to playing sober again. And I'd go home and get blasted so that I couldn't, uh, didn't have to sit in that guilt, shame, and remorse. And around that time, I was uh, going to a, a meeting on Tuesday nights over in Louisville. Uh, I was hearing things I hadn't heard before. I was hearing a deeper level of sharing than I was hearing in other meetings. And uh, at the end of that meeting, they always do a sponsorship statement where guys raise their hand. They say, well, all, uh, will, will everybody who is willing and uh, available right now to sponsor a guy through the 12 steps, please raise your hand. And a bunch of guys would raise their hand, and that really was attractive to me because I didn't have to worry about so much about walking up and getting rejected about asking somebody to sponsor me. Uh, I was hearing the kind of talk that was that was gelling with me in this meeting, and these guys were raising their hands when uh, when 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 asked if they wanted to sponsor a guy. So I started stalking a sponsor in there, and a guy that I really really liked, and he uh, said stuff that uh, was really attracting me. Uh, never ever raised his hand. I'd go in there every Tuesday night, 
and uh, watching for this guy to raise his hand, and he wouldn't. So then I had to start looking for who was going to be on the second string or the third string, who I was going to pick. And uh, one Tuesday I had that court appointment, and uh, and I couldn't drink that day because I didn't want to miss that meeting. And I knew if I came home from that from the court that day and had one drink, uh, that would be it for me for the day. And uh, I also knew, or I had it in my head, that if I didn't make that meeting, uh, that guy I was hoping to sponsor me would raise his hand the night that I missed. So I wasn't going to miss, and I sat at home all day long with that guilt, shame, and remorse, and it was eating me alive. Walked in that Tuesday night meeting, they also do something else. They ask if anybody has a burning desire. And that night I did. I had a big burning desire, and for the first time I opened up to that group what was going on with me because before then I was doing the I'm fine talk and uh, everything's going pretty good and, and, and lying my way through it. Uh, that night I told the truth and I told the group where I was at. And uh, like, ha like happened in 2011 when I showed up at my very first AA meeting, and, uh, and I'll say this, I got tricked into speaking that night, too, and letting people know where I was at. It's another uh, miracle in my life is uh, the ability to share in these meetings and allow these people to help me. Because you can sit in the back of the room and be quiet and get absolutely no help. Or you can come in and get some front row sobriety, what I call front row sobriety, and share with a group and let these people in your life so that they can help you. So after that meeting, uh, the group, or during the meeting, the group poured the juice on me and uh, told me that, uh, encouraged me and told me things like, I remember one guy saying, well, we haven't seen anybody go to jail that has worked these 12 steps. And uh, I didn't believe that. Uh, some other guy said, you know, well, you know, if by some chance, uh, you know, you end up someplace, we'll come see you. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, yeah, I bet you will. Uh, but it was very helpful, and it did give me uh, hope. Uh, that's something that was important. I, I didn't really realize how important it was, but it, but it made me keep coming back, right? Helped me in a second step, too, because I saw these guys who had something that, uh, that, that allured me, that, that attracted me. The bigger miracle of that night was directly after that meeting when everybody stopped and we uh, closed a meeting and, and then went into the period of fellowship after the meeting. That guy that uh, never raises his hand walked right up to me and spoke to me for just a minute and said, I want to sponsor you. I felt a fundamental shift in my consciousness. I didn't know that now, man. This is all rearview mirror talk. But uh, I did feel a shift and, and he said, but, and I didn't like that, I want to sponsor you, but... But you had to agree to some ground rules, and he uh, started to lay out these ground rules and told me that if uh, that I need to get a big book. I told him I already have one. He says, I got any writing in it? And I said, yeah. And he goes, uh, well, I want you to get a brand new clean big book and a hardcover one at that. And he reminded me that I could get those at this very meeting if I wanted to. He told me I needed to call him every day between 1 and 3 o'clock. The next day I called him at 2 o'clock. That is exactly between 1 and 3. He said we were going to meet on Tuesday nights and was my Tuesday nights open because that was the only time slot he had. And I didn't give it a second thought because whatever was going on in my life on Tuesday nights was not as important as this. He said he's sponsored by assignment and that I'd be expected to do my assignments week to week. And at any time I was uh, not able to fulfill my part of these ground rules uh, that he probably wouldn't be able to continue working. We'd have to have that talk. He wouldn't be able to continue working with me. I uh, don't believe that was ever a problem. There was one night when uh, we were early on and we were sitting in a Starbucks and he, we were working the stuff and I was distracted and and just kind of halfway present. And uh, I remember hearing the squeak of the uh, wooden chair sliding across that tile floor as he got up and told me he, that it didn't seem like I was all that interested in uh, doing this work and that maybe I should find somebody else. And I flipped out. Uh, I said, no, 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 sit down, sit down, no. And, and I don't even remember what I said, but he smiled. And he said, that's the kind of uh, desperation I want to see in a guy. Uh, I have been completely attached to uh, that kind of desperation and that kind of enthusiasm in my step work since then. So that guy sponsoring me is another one of my uh, miracles. Uh, it's on the list the night that he, uh, the guy who never raised his hand, walked up, told me he was going to sponsor me. And uh, some three years and ten months later, uh, that guy's still my sponsor and, and ultimately 
I venture to say, uh, my best friend. That six to 20 years in prison, I worked these steps. I walked down it. My sponsor kept on uh, reeling me back in when I would tell him, but you just don't understand the lawyer. You don't understand the this, the that. Uh, he kept on telling me to just focus on this step work and uh, do this one day at a time thing and walk this path and uh, let higher power take care of uh, all the details. That uh, six to 20 year prison sentence, potential prison sentence, turned into uh, a plea to three years. One year on home incarceration, one year on probation, and the other year suspended upon completion of those other two things. Uh, I spent nine months on home incarceration, three months on what they call a day reporting plan, and another year on probation. I never spent a day in jail. When I was agreeing to that home incarceration or trying to work a deal for that, which was a miracle in itself because they weren't going to let old Dan do home incarceration at his house because he was breaking into the house across the street. Um, somebody, uh, I had a ton of angels around me, suggested that uh, maybe I ask if I could maybe do my home incarceration someplace else at another location. And... Uh, uh, I, people kept on giving me these ideas, and, and I thought they were all full of crap. Uh, I, my brain said horseshit. Uh, these ideas these guys, uh, these people are having, guys and gals are having, are, are crazy. But uh, something would make me do it. And I talked to my lawyer. My lawyer went and talked to the prosecutor. And I'll be damned if the, the prosecutor didn't go for that. Uh, I needed to come up with a location. And uh, didn't know if I was maybe going to go to like a rec men's recovery home. or uh, But I didn't really want to do that. Uh, talked to him about if I could do it at my parents' house, and uh, that seemed to be acceptable to the to the prosecutor. So that was the deal we worked out. And uh, one week before I was supposed to go do the official pleading and uh, and get my official sentencing and all that, um, I went over to mom's house to uh, clean up their uh, back bedroom so that their 45-year-old son could move in there. Well, mom had been struggling, uh, I guess, most of her life with uh, pharmaceutical addictions, uh, pain pills and, and other things. And uh, and I thought she was off of them. We had talked about that. She knew I was struggling, too. That's who I stole my first pain pills from was from her. And uh, that day when I walked in her house to go clean up that room, she, I saw that she had a jar of them next to her. And I saw that posture of her chin down on her chest. And she was, you know, nodding off. And uh, I panicked. I told, uh, dad was sitting there and, and, and I told him I would be back and they didn't, you know, where are you going? What's the matter? Hold on. Aren't you going to clean up this room? And I couldn't really hear anything they were saying. I just needed to skedaddle. And I went out of there and, uh, did as I did quite often in early recovery. Uh, a mantra flew through my head that I, I don't know what to do. 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 Uh, and the little ding went off. And I uh, realized, yes, you do know what to do. You call your sponsor. And I did that. And he called me down and he told me, uh, well, we can't go back to the till now. We can't go back to the judge or the prosecutor and say, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Prosecutor, there's been a little change. So he said, we're just going to have to ride this out and uh, keep you safe until then and uh, work on getting you into some place that, that that, that, where you can live and, and, and be safe. Your recovery is safe. And uh, I had no idea what he was saying, but he said, until now, between now and then, and, he, and again, this is a reoccurring theme, uh, he asked me, and, and I don't know if this is exactly right, but this is the way I digested it, uh, that I was going to need to, uh, this was going to be an opportunity for me to challenge my reliance on my higher power. Now, sometimes I heard that and I thought he meant I was going to challenge my higher power, but that is not what it was being said. The way I understand it today is that I was challenging my reliance. We say that in here, you know, I want to build a relationship with my higher power, but even more than that, uh, I want to build a reliance on higher power in my life. And so he said to pray. And, uh, you know, that seemed like a pretty shallow solution to me back then. But uh, everything that he had told me up to date had been working out in my life. So I thought, well, we will do this one, too. So, uh, you know, I really didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. And so I prayed like I'd never prayed before. And he told me to simply pray for a higher power to support me in my recovery, whatever that means. 
So I did that, and the next week I went down uh, to the courthouse, and and Mom went with me, and some uh, friends out of uh, 12-step recovery went down to support me too. And you know, before you go out in front of the judge and do it officially, we were back into some room and signing the papers and agreeing, and you know, is this what you agree to? Blah blah blah, and yeah, and sign here. So I'm paging through that paperwork, and it says uh, you will be, you know, three uh, sentenced to three years, uh, one year on home incarceration to be served at, and it had my home address on it. It did not have my parents' address on it, and I don't really remember much more of that day, to be honest with you. I remember going out and pleading that, but that that mistake that was in that paperwork rang in my ears the whole time. And once again, I walked out of that courthouse doing that same mantra I'd done a week earlier. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Yes, you do. You call your sponsor. And I did, and I told him about the mistake they had made, and he laughed. And uh, there's nothing quite like when you dump something what you think is like a crisis into your sponsor's lap, and and, and you get a laugh back as a response. Um uh, he reminded me what I'd been praying for all week long, and I uh, said for my higher power to support. To, uh huh. I've been praying for my higher power to support my recovery. And when a place became unsafe for me to stay there, uh, that place, that address was changed to a safer place. And now here's where it gets to be a little bit of stickiness. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but. Uh, you know, they tell me this is a program of honesty, and I uh, was looking at that, and I had some people in the program tell me that uh, I needed to go down and tell them about the mistake they had made on this paperwork. Uh, they would find it out sooner or later, and I might as well be up front about it, and it'd be better if that's the way I operated. Uh, my sponsor had a different idea. His idea was that if I went down there to change that paperwork, that I would be undoing my higher powers work, my higher powers work in my life, supporting my recovery. And I learned a big lesson about honesty that day and what it means. And it's, and, and honesty is a lot tougher question than uh, it seems like it is at times. It's not, <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, I learned that, that honesty can be subjective. Uh, I don't have to be a martyr. I don't have to tack myself up on the cross and bring my own nails and hammer. Uh, that is not what honesty means. At home incarceration program, usually they lock you down. 15 or 30 days is what my understanding was according to your assessment. So when you go down there, you get assessed according to your, uh, I guess, your risk level. And so I went down and my sponsor told me to do a couple things and coached me once again and see this coaching was working out really good in my life. Uh, so I'm starting to begin to rely on it. Uh, I was realizing a higher power in my life, and, and it was that dude. Because he was giving me some instructions and some directions that were working really, really well. So one of the things he told me to do was take a complete list. And I was going to a lot of meetings, so I was not stretching the truth. This was, this was honest. Uh, I was going to a meeting about every day. Um, and he told me to list those meetings and take them down there uh, and, and, and request that, that I get to continue my recovery with my home, during home incarceration. He also told me to put down my uh, kids, my son's scout meetings and my daughter's dance and other things like that. And, and my, he said, you know, it can't hurt to ask. I thought, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But I went down there to do that and uh, showed them paperwork to the guy who uh, had just strapped an ankle bracelet onto me. And uh, he he kind of looked at uh, that paper and, and I could see I had a little shiver down my spine that this wasn't going to go well. And he said, hang on a minute, Mr. Reeves, I need to make a phone call. And he called a je uh, and, and said a female's name and asked that she come in and talk to him and Mr. Reeves. Uh, I wasn't expecting what I saw come around the corner. Uh but what I identified today, looking once again back in the rearview mirror, what I saw come around the corner was an angel. What was going to turn out to be an angel in my life. And she talked to me for a few minutes and asked me about why I went to the meetings I went to. And I did my best to explain why I went to those particular meetings. They were kind of spread around. But I was going to the meetings that were supplying me with uh, what I needed. And I was staying away from the meetings that didn't. 
And she said, let him go to those meetings and let him take his daughter to dance and let him take his son to scouts. So uh, I had a full work day, had a job, and I've had for uh, coming up on 28 years now. And uh, they let me do all that. And I kind of joked around that for a guy who was on home incarceration, I, uh, I was rarely home. That home incarceration officer, uh, at some point I was uh, with a, I fell into a group who were, who were real heavy into a serious meditation, like group meditations, and, and taking that really seriously, not just, uh, not just a word we say when we read the 11th step. And uh, I had an opportunity to go to a meditation class, a month-long thing. We went for Saturdays for, I don't remember how long it was, a few hours every Saturday for a month. And uh, when I was telling her about it one day, she asked if she could go. And uh, I was really good friends with the guy who was running the meditation program. And uh, and it wasn't full. I knew there was one more spot, but probably even if there wasn't, I probably could have got her in. And uh, and I did. And she attended that month-long uh, meditation class with me, my home incarceration officer did. She also uh, attended my first and second sobriety birthdays. Uh, and had I told her about my third, I'm sure she'd have been there too. I'm almost four years sober, not quite. I have hosted five recovery retreats, not attended, hosted. I have a place out in the country. Uh, it's a piece of, my, I say, my personal slice of paradise. Um, it's a log cabin on 50-something acres in Orange County, Indiana, tucked in the Hoosier National Forestry, and it was built on drugs and alcohol, and most of the time I was down there, that's what I did. My hunting became a uh, sneak off to the cabin and drink all weekend. Uh I changed the energy down there at that place, and um, they were having a day-long retreat. My home group was having they uh, this very important group of men in my life were having a talking about having a day-long retreat at a forest here nearby, and and I couldn't go to it because it was just right out of the counties I was allowed to go to when I was on home incarceration. But it gave me an idea, and these ideas have paid off well for me in recovery. Uh, it's part of this, you know, and that doesn't even sound right paying off. You know, that book does say a price must be paid, doesn't it? So it was one of the first things that got an idea in my head of how I could, like, up my level of participation in my recovery. And that same guy that had those uh, recovery, uh, those meditation meetings and and kind of brought that aspect into my life, he uh, had taught me two other things, and one of them was add to, A-D-D-T-O. I need to add to my life i need to add to my recovery i need to keep on plugging new things it's the same as bill's word use of the word continue and he taught me another thing and it's a pretty simple concept that i keep close in my recovery today and it just simply says this you must participate in your own recovery and i try to do both of those things uh today in my life add to and participate in my recovery and I got the idea that I could take and have these guys come down to my place in the uh, in the uh, forestry and have a men's retreat so I did the first one we had 20 or so guys come down and spend the night and uh, have meetings and I had some I had an idea come to me from uh, for a particular meeting uh, where we put topics in a in a bucket and draw them out and you share on that uh, that way people were sharing from their heart rather than from their heads because they had to come off of whatever. They didn't have time to plan as we went around the room of what, what smart stuff, what, what profound things I was going to say. You pulled it out of the bucket and you had to share on that topic. I also attached little uh, medallions I made out of wood to commemorate the event. So you got a token, uh, had a little memento to take home with you. And I still do that, that meeting... So I've had five of those. Uh, didn't have one this past fall because of some other things I'll get into in a minute. Another miracle in my life is that I am uh, have have uh, really taken on to having a consistent yoga practice in my life. And uh, this today is uh, October 31st, 2018. This is Halloween. Uh, this is a Wednesday. A week from tomorrow, I will start on a new venture in my life, taking uh, yoga teacher training. Uh, it's another miracle of my recovery. And that's why I didn't have the retreat this fall. 
uh, I am going to get back to it. And I had a little buyer's remorse, or I guess it's actually seller's remorse by getting rid of it, by not doing it this fall. I, I missed it, and I, and I wished I hadn't done that. I wished I'd have squeezed it in. But uh, I plan on doing another one in the spring, and we will just continue to take it uh, day by day, month by month on that account. My employer never found out about that run-in with the law. Um, I'd failed a urinalysis at work sometime before that and received one of those uh, timeouts from work for a while, suspended from work. Uh, I was really concerned that uh, I'd signed a paper that said if I screwed up again, uh, my, my employment would be terminated. I get to travel a bit for my work. I've got to go to a lot of places, Thailand, Singapore, um, Turkey, all over the United States. Can't really think of where else, but we'll bounce to other places and uh, as uh, in connecting flights and things like that. And I was scared to death I was going to be asked to travel when I had an ankle bracelet on, and I'd already felt that out with the home incarceration, uh, the corrections officers down there, and, and, and they said that more likely wouldn't be possible. And I uh, went through nine months of that home incarceration. Never once had to, uh, ter- never was once asked to travel. I did that uh, day reporting when they gave when they took the ankle bracelet off. They loosened up the rope a little bit, and uh, I was really let, actually it was letting they let me off the ankle bracelet early, three months early. Uh, the officers down there saw in five months I had made I had worked the steps, and I was free. Now, the community corrections down there uh, didn't think I was free. They still owned an ankle bracelet, and they had a piece of me that wasn't free. But in my heart and soul, was free, and they could see that. And in nine months, they took off that ankle bracelet, and I, all I had to do was call in every day. And, hell, I was already calling my sponsor every day, so calling that angel was uh, actually a highlight of my day. I was totally okay with calling her every day. Um, and after that, I had a year of probation. Once again, worried that I'd be called on to travel, and uh, never was, never did happen. Uh, but like, and so this timeline gets a little fuzzy. Uh, I actually know it very well, but I can't. Uh, like, I always think if I'm like communicating this definite timeline, that the listeners really don't give a shit about that. So, in September of 2007, no, <laughs> see that's what I mean right there. Uh, in September of 2000. 16 i was asked to be on a team at work that was going to work on a new some new technology and one of the things they were going to do is send us to uh japan nagasaki japan to work with mitsubishi on on developing this new technology and i was going to need to be making that trip and i went to my at that time probation officer and talked to her about it and she said if you (laughs) i remember exactly she said if you was going to alabama or tennessee or something like that I'm sure we could work that out. But she said, I don't think you're going to be able to go uh, out of the country. She said, well, we can file a motion for the judge, and and we can see if that's something that you really have to do. So I did the same thing I've been taught to do all through my recovery. When I get in a tight spot, I pray for my higher power to support me in my recovery, whatever that means. And that, uh, that that, that team started getting postponed. And the trip being postponed month by month in September went to October and November and December. And then they were aiming for leaving in January. Nobody wanted to travel around the holidays. And uh, on February the 18th of 2017, I was uh, released from my probation. February the 18th, 2017. Uh, on February the 20th. Ninth, I was on an airplane on the way to Nagasaki, Japan. My higher power postponed that, and that trip ended up being like a spiritual mecca kind of thing. Uh, I went over there and I uh, had a freedom that I'd never had before. I sat over there and uh, and they really want to do two things when you travel to Japan, or and, and this is pretty typical with all cultures. Uh, they want to get you drunk and they want to feed you stuff that makes you uncomfortable. Uh, I will eat about anything. But I had to turn my glass upside down, and they have another culture, cultural thing over there where you never uh, have your glass empty. Your neighbor next to you will fill your glass for you. And uh, that was a little bit of a uh, constant. Uh, I had to stay on my toes on that matter the whole, the whole week, week and a half, uh, to make sure that my glass wasn't uh, getting filled up. Not that, I mean, it could sit there full, too. But... Uh, and it, it intrigued a couple of those guys because I watched them change from drinking to drunk 
And uh, when you do that every night and you start realizing, you know, having this alcoholic deal, you start being on it. If you got it, you can spot it. And I could spot it in some people. And a couple of them started talking to me. And I don't know where that will ever go. But I had an opportunity to uh, plant some seeds to those fellas. And I also had an opportunity to do something else that just meant a ton to me. I took a Saturday and toured all of Nagasaki, Japan. Uh, it was a total... Uh, What's the Herbert Spencer line? Uh, contempt prior to investigation. I had no idea that Nagasaki, Japan, was as beautiful as it is. It's a uh, port town, and it would give you. It gets off. It gives off a vibe of like a Mediterranean, like maybe Greece or something. It has a really odd vibe. I was not expecting. It's beautiful, and I toured it. They have trolley cars, the same kind with the lines over the streets that run up and down. And, you know, if it's dark, you can see the sparks arcing off of the, the electrical deal. And uh, I toured from southern Nagasaki to northern Nagasaki, and I'd looked for an AA meeting, and it's kind of hard to find. Uh, there's not a lot of translation over there. And I uh, I did find a meeting, and uh, when I was on the north end of Nagasaki on that Saturday night, I went and walked into a meeting in Japan, and and that was a, a magical evening. Um, you know, I, I, when I pulled up, I saw a guy standing outside this this room, this church room, with uh, smoking cigarettes, and and I knew I was in the right place instantly. And uh, when I went up to talk to a guy, and I said, "Hey, hey," and he looked at me, and his eyes got real big, wondering what this big, tall, skinny, white dude was doing, saying, "Hey, hey," there in Nagasaki. And they invited me into their meeting, and they went around and they uh, read and. I tried to, you know, they were doing the opening readings, and, and I was trying to do my best to follow along, and um, I didn't know what the hell they were reading, but I was following along, and what I thought was how it works. I don't know. I just thought that's probably what they were reading. Uh, that sixth sense, and I'm following along in my book, and my fingers walking along, and my eyes are following the page, and it gets to the point where it says... Uh, our adventures before and after made clear three pertinent ideas. A, and that guy said A, and he said some Japanese, and he said B, and he said some Japanese, and he said C, and chills ran up my spine. And it went around, it was a discussion meeting, and they were doing it uh, in a circle form. You know, one guy, one, one person shared, and they were just moving right around the room in order. And it got around to me, and the guy to my left looked over, and uh, he said, speech, <laughs> which I assume meant my invitation to share. And I couldn't tell a damn thing they said all night. And I, when I shared, they couldn't understand a thing I said either. Here's one of the wood shop things. My, my, my air compressor just kicked on. One minute, please. Hey, I said this uh, podcast we're doing is real folks, right? Well, there's something real. Uh, so, back to that. I sit there and couldn't understand a damn thing they said, and I'm sure they couldn't understand a damn thing I said, and that was just okay with everybody because it didn't matter. I was sitting in a chair, and I thought, <laughs> it breaks me up, man. Uh, I sit there in the chair in a room at Alcoholics Anonymous on the other side of the world, and just a couple weeks before, I couldn't leave the damn county I lived in without getting permission. And now I'm over there. And the night before, I've been standing on top of a mountain uh, in Nagasaki that overlooked one of the most beautiful nightscapes I'd ever seen while the Japanese sun was, or where the sun was setting over the Japanese ocean behind me. And if that's not a miracle in recovery, I don't know what one is. My kids joined Alateen pretty early on. I had an ankle bracelet on, and uh, they just had to go where I went. They were too young to stay home alone, and when I went to a meeting and they were with me, they had to go with me, and they would sit in the hallway, and I invited them to one particular night uh, or, you know, took them, to me with, took them with me on one particular night where there was an Alateen meeting, and they weren't even teenagers yet. But somebody, one of my dear friends, recommended maybe I ask, and I couldn't do it, and she did, and they said, sure, let them come, and if they're mature enough to stay, they'll let them. And my son decided, when I asked him, my daughter said, nope. And my son said, sure, I don't care. You know, he said, I don't care, Dad. And he started going to that Alateen meeting, and my daughter would, uh, she wouldn't go in, and, but she had to be there with me. And uh, I would tell her, you know, you can come in the meeting with me, you can go in the meeting with Dustin, or you can sit on this bench that was in the hallway at the church, and she sat on the bench. 
Week after week, she sat on the bench, sat on the bench. And one night on the way over there, Dustin had been going to a church, a, uh, a youth group thing beforehand. And uh, so he was already there, and I picked up Krista from dance, and we were heading over. And uh, she looked, she said, hey, Dad. And I said, yeah. She said, hey, I think I want to go to that meeting tonight. <laughs> and I'm going to break down again. And I get touched once again. Uh by this recovery and this higher power working in my life. And Chris went in that meeting and uh, one of her stipulations was, was could she sit by Dustin? And uh, I said, I'm sure they can work that out. And she went into that meeting and uh, afterwards then my, we would be fellowshipping in, in, the, in, the, in the meeting I'm in, uh, in the hey, hey meeting. Uh, and she... Uh, she come blown out of that other room, and she looked like she had roller skates on, and uh, I could see the the juice had hit her, and uh, and then my kids engaged in Alatine, and it's huge in their recovery. Um, my daughter spoke a number of times. She went around to some schools and talked and shared her story of a little girl growing up with alcoholic father, and the pain that was involved there, and what happened after he got well, and what life was like after her dad had came to recovery and had the steps work in his life and you haven't heard much until you've heard your little daughter tell that story in front of people at uh at the biggest convention in town um that's a miracle Mac's wife's sniffing around Al-Anon we'll see what happens there uh the gal that was at my house that night when I broke in across the street she uh she was here, and that guy came over. One thing I left out was that he came over to my house after that. He thought I came home, I suppose. Uh, I ran a different direction, but he came to the house, and he brought a baseball bat, and he raked out the side lights up and down up each side of my front door and busted a big round window out of there, and he came in the house, and he uh, pretty much broke anything that was glass, a mirror, uh, tore up some bookshelves, and just generally uh, played some havoc on my on my interior of my home. Uh, that gal crouched down back there by those kids' bedrooms, uh, protecting them from the monster that had invaded, a monster that I brought into their lives. They faced each other walking down the hallway, and uh, I brought those two people together. They had no business knowing one another, to be honest. Um, anyway, she um, she went to a particular 12-step fellowship, too. And I uh, worked these 12 steps and had her own spiritual awakening. She's doing big stuff now, too. And I know that's nothing to do with me. That's just another miracle in my life and a result of recovery and watching uh, people's lives change when they do these 12 steps. She brought me to yoga, actually. She's the one that did that. And now I'm going to go be, she's a teacher. She's a yoga teacher now. And, and she, uh, she delivers a program called Y12SR here locally where they combine the 12 steps and, uh, in the ancient practice of yoga into a single meeting of uh, have a 12-step style discussion meeting for half for 45 minutes and then do yoga for 45 minutes and uh, always say that uh, we, we talk these trinities, right? This uh, mind, body, spirit, recovery, unity, service. Um, you know, we do a lot for the mind and the spirit and uh, these rooms of recovery. We don't do much for the bodies. As a matter of fact, we bring cake and cookies and uh and slug lots of coffee and stand outside and smoke cigarettes. Uh, we do a talk on this mind, body, spirit. Today, I'm a proponent of putting some body in my mind, body, and spirit. Uh, it's, it's another miracle and another place where I, my recovery is, uh, has ascended to another level. And I don't mean that to sound arrogant, but that is the fact. Uh, once I started taking care of this body, I feel better every day. Uh, man, my life has been saved. My life was saved by 12 steps. Now I'm going to continue to do these unhealthy behaviors in other places in my life. Now, what this whole thing is for is for me to be reborn and begin to operate with different principles in my life. Not keep on doing all the other crap I was doing, the smoking and the bad eating. and the... So I do all that today. More miracles. My mom uh, eventually succumbed to that addiction. It didn't look like that. It looked like a stroke during a neck surgery. Um, yeah, well, uh, 
fact of the matter was I went in there to talk to the doctor about what the hell he had done wrong, and he told me my mom had more narcot excuse me, more narcotics on board than he had anticipated, and that would put her for a huge risk of a stroke during the surgery, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, for days she couldn't talk, she couldn't swallow, she'd lost one side of her use of her body, and that was eventually to take her down, and uh, some months later she passed. Um, I got to be there for her, and I got to be there for my dad and my family as a sober man. I administered them final doses of medication, medication that uh, in a previous state I would have been stealing. I got to make my amends with my mom before she passed, and it wasn't on those in those under those dire of circumstances. It was well before that. My dad moved in with me. He got tired of living at home by himself. He lives here now. He's a big part of why this wood shop's out here now. Was now this uh, spiritual underground podcast studio at the moment. Found him last Christmas uh, on the floor upstairs in a pool of blood. Didn't know what had happened to him. Uh, his gallbladder had exploded. And uh, we called 911, run him off to the hospital and... Uh, Let's just say there's other family members uh, that I have around that, that are not in a position to help the way that I am today. And uh, my dad stood there at the end of that day after getting that ball, gallbladder removed, and he looked at me with tears in his eyes and told him he, he could always count on me, that I'm always there for him. That's not the way it used to be. I get to do stuff today. I got a big time issue when people say I have to. Uh, I get it; it's just words, right? But the way I talk and the way I operate, uh, change—you know—the the, the way I my words mean something today. And I get to do stuff. I don't have to do anything. Went to the totality, the 2017 eclipse. Had no idea, but I knew I was going to take my kids and go see it because it was something that I didn't even know it was on my bucket list until I watched it, and I didn't know what I was going to do. But a friend a week earlier said, what are you doing next weekend? And I said, I'm going to go see the eclipse. And he said, no kidding. Hey, my cousin's got a place in the, on top of a mountain in Tennessee, and you can go down there. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. And he's hooked me up with this guy, man. And we drove four hours down to the totality zone up to this guy's place. And uh, another plain miracle, man. We walked into this beautiful piece of property with these awesome freaking people, man. And then we, and we sit there for the day and camped out. And the next day got up and watched that uh, – Watch that eclipse happen, uh, and it was it was something awesome. That we was a, it was it was it really was. It's a bucket list thing, and I got to do it with my kids. And it's coming through again. It's going to be total eclipse in 2024, and it's coming right over top of that place out in Orange County, my, my 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 personal slice of paradise. And I've invited people already to come share that with me. Told you I had this shop in my backyard. Another miracle. I get to come out here and uh, make sawdust and build beautiful things for people. Uh, my first paying gig and woodworking happened out here. I have a fairly steady little uh, supply of work keeping me busy, and uh, and it's just something that warms my heart. It's a job that I do that uh, that 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 really means something to me. I have a normal day job that pays the bills, and and you know for the longest time I really really liked that job. Uh, it just doesn't fulfill me the way some other things do today. This past year, I've quit nicotine. Just not a couple weeks ago, uh, I haven't hit the 365 days off of nicotine. I did that through a fellowship uh, on the Internet. Uh, a bunch of people quitting nicotine together. They put us up in little groups where we were in 30-day ranges of one another. And we quit together, you know, and I took a guy halfway through the steps doing that. And and I know he didn't finish, but there was an impact was made, and and I don't know what's going on with that guy, but it was another opportunity. It's really cool. I started shooting these uh, YouTube videos uh, having to do with that quit. We would post roll every day, and I still do that. I share my day count, how many days off of nicotine I am. Uh, today I'm 378 days off of nicotine, and this just happens to be my 1,400 day sober, 1,400 days. And I know that, and I uh, thought it was kind of funny at first when they were counting days, but, you know, it comes down to that one thing. We really only have a day at a time, right?
So I, um, lost my track here for a minute. So I started shooting those YouTube videos, doing a video roll call. Every day I would, uh, we, we post on the website what our day count is. And basically that's our promise to our buddies that we are not going to use today. And it was their promise to me. They weren't either. And uh, I thought it was funny one day when I was sitting up there watching, I was actually watching them work on this shop. And, uh, and I shot a little video and posted it to YouTube and put the link on the website and people liked it. And another thing I'm addicted to is your approval and your attention. So I did another one the next day and the next day. And I did well over a hundred something of those videos. And that's actually the precursor to these podcasts, I think. And, and something else that's going to be coming down the road, too. Uh, my sponsor's updating the 12 steps, bringing the language up to today's, uh, what, up today's standards, I guess you could say. And uh, the concepts also, you know. Um, another thing I heard a speaker say was that if a surgeon was working on me today, I'd hope that he had read a book newer than 80 years old. And so here we go, because Dad's going to walk. Nope, he saw me on the thing, and he's not going to walk in. Uh, here I am 15 minutes into this recording, and I thought we was going to have a visitor. I guess that wouldn't be the end of the world, would it? So he's writing this book, and uh, we're going to have to start having meetings. We, I get, I say that, I stop myself, but he's allowed me now. He says, nah, man, you are part of the we. So we're going to start having meetings for 12 steps for everybody. And if you're an addict or an alcoholic or not, Maybe you're just miserable. Maybe you just want, maybe you're not. Maybe you just think it could be better. Uh, 12 Steps will help you do that. And uh, he's written it in a way that uh, that makes it, that's making it accessible to everybody. And I imagine these podcasts and videos and stuff are going to be a part of that. Because uh, in order to touch people today, that's what we do. We uh, we use this media to, uh, to create longer arms. Uh, so now I know why I was shooting those YouTube videos. One year off of nicotine, another thing put down every time I continue to put things down that are not serving me. Buddha said that, right? Put down the things that no longer serve you. And uh, the flip side of that, I don't know if he said this or not, but for me, I have to pick up things, add to. I got to fill that vacuum and uh, put good things in my life to fill those up. And, and when I keep my eyes open, walk as walk, I, I'll, there's a uh, seem to be an endless supply of good things I'm able to put into my life. So we'll get down to this uh, particular story. This wood shop was brand new. I didn't even have electricity in it. And I took my son to uh, scouts one night and picked him up afterwards. And the scoutmaster said, hey, a boy named Matthew would like to talk to you. And, uh, of course, I always uh, shrink when somebody seems to need something from me. I'm better at that now, but uh, my selfish self-centeredness is still in there. And uh so I walked over and Matthew talked to me and he said, I heard you're a woodworker. And I said, well, I, and I have trouble hearing that too, you know, but I said, yes, I, I guess I am. And he goes, well, uh, I'm aging out. And this was uh, right around Thanksgiving last year. He said, I'm aging out, which means turning 18 in scouts. And once you turn 18, you can't, you've aged out. You, you hit the limit and you can't do the, you won't get your Eagle Scout. And he said, I'm aging out and I need to do my Eagle Scout project. And I was wondering if you would help me do that. <laughs> And, uh, man, looking back on it, at the time I didn't want to do it, you know, I, you know, I did, I knew what an honor it was, but there was still something in my core that didn't want to do it. Right. And, uh, so I talked to him for a few minutes and he's kind of slow on the draw. We fooled around and got together and started planning it. And he wanted to build a, there's a thing in the VFWs and uh, American Legions, and and also from what I understand, it's at dinners for uh, you know military ceremonies and things like that. It's a table for the missing soldier, and they set a table for the guy who's MIA, you know, holding a place for him. Or when he comes back, man, we got a place for you. And uh, the American Legion here in town's got a really nice vestibule protecting theirs, man, a big wooden structure and glass around it, like a movie theater rope hanging across, keeps it and makes it a place of honor. And the VFW just has a chair and a table sitting there with the stuff, and uh, and and people would sit down at that table because they didn't know any better. And and his his idea, his, he had an uncle die of Agent Orange uh, from Vietnam, and and that's how he got in, you know, in uh, contact with VFW. And another one of it, he lived with his uh, with another uncle, brother of the one that passed, and. Uh, 
he wanted to make a vestibule to do that down there and we we went and saw the big one it was in a bigger way bigger room so we need to scale it down for this other one to make it uh appropriate for the room and we did that and we planned on it and i'm also uh, my career really is based on drafting i learned to draw when i was a kid and drew house plans and now i'm basically uh, they put an engineer on my business card today but i'm basically just a really experienced draftsman and so I still like to draw most of my woodwork, and I do. I'll, I'll lay out and draw it before I, I build it, uh, build it on paper first. So we laid it, we sat down and we drew plans for it, which was a part that needed to be done anyway because you got to get approval from the Eagle Scout Committee and different things like that. And, of course, we need bill materials to be able to order material, estimate cost, all that kind of stuff. So we, me and that boy sat down, me and Matthew sat down, and we did that. I keep calling him a boy. He's a young man. And uh, we got to know each other. And one of the things about these projects is he's got to do it in that we thing, just like we do. It's a we thing. So he has to have helpers come help him build. And so scouts would come over and help us. But we're working on power tools, so we got to be a little careful there because there's some rules. And there's some rules about me being alone with scouts. And um, I ended up taking youth protection, taking a training class, which I hadn't taken before from helping my son in scouts. But I took it so that I would be qualified to be with these boys, young men. And anyway, we sit here and we cut this stuff up, bought the material, cut it up, would work out here and uh, put it together. And they come over and help to stain it. And we carried it all down into my basement to stain it. And uh, that's the other thing about building this wood shop now. Which I, now I need another one to do like finish work so I can continue making dust while I'm finishing things. But in that case, what we did, we carried it all down in the basement and we finished it down there. And on the last night, I was working with them. And, you know, he got to, you know, we started getting close and we were sharing things and he's you know he complained about his girlfriend and tell me different things about his life and what was going on in school and his plans for the future and different things like that so we started getting close and uh you know in the beginning i was like you know why is this kid asking me to do this you know i'm a busy dude but man it's an honor it's an honor to be asked to do that don't make any difference uh be a part of a boys eagle scout pro uh project that's an honor so we're down in the basement, and uh, it was the final coat of the polyurethane we were putting on that on that structure. And we'd uh, sitting down there, and I told him, I said, "Be best if it's just me and you, because this last coat needs to be put on very carefully so it looks good, and and like a two me cook spoil the broth kind of thing." So he come over, and we were down there doing that, and I and I knew he lived with his aunt and uncle, and they were much older, you know. And he called him aunt uh, aunt so and so and uncle so and so and. And I asked him for whatever reason we're talking, and I said, "Hey, can I ask you a question?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, why do you why do you live with your aunt and uncle?" And he told me it was complicated. And I smiled and told him that if he didn't want to share it, that was okay. You don't have to share that with me. And he, uh, no, I think I should share it with you. And I had told him a little bit about my story and said some things. And um, he said, "Well, Mr. Reeves." Because I just blew my anonymity with that. Um, well, Mr. Reeves, it's like this. When I was 10 years old, my mom died of liver failure. She was an alcoholic. My dad is gone. Most of us suspect he's dead. He was a drug addict. I never knew him. And he said he got passed around from family to family. He was in foster care for a while until an aunt and uncle decided to take him in. And I knew right then, I had a feeling, I'm sitting in the basement, and even though we had two floors of wood and structure above us, uh, I could feel higher powers energy on me. And I knew that I was sitting exactly where I was supposed to be sitting, doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing at that very moment. I don't know what happens to a person when they bring themselves completely into alignment. But I've had intimations of what that might mean.